are listening to Shadow Horse Theater Broadcasting. We come to you from the shadowy fields of Minnesota with Dark Pony Radio Show, presented to you by the Dark Pony Players, featuring Todd O'Dowd. This month's episode is sponsored by the Living Artist Podcast. Don't wait until you're dead to make a living as an artist. And now is, as always, the Pale Lady. <laughs> Good evening, my adventurous monsters. We have an evening planned for you. Joining us tonight is the Dark Gentleman. Thank you, my love. Tonight's story is one of exploration, determination, and methodical madness. There are few places left unexplored on this planet, but there are still plenty of shrouded places that exist. The 30s was a period on the verge of war, poverty at its height, and yet exploration of what the future may hold for humankind. Joy of the unknown and cosmic horror. My little nymphs, let us travel to the mystery of Antarctica. Good evening. My name is Terrence. I'm here from the Arkham Advertiser, per your request, Dr. Dreyer. The Elder Pharaohs lights the way. Right. Dr. Dyer, you reached out to the Advertiser to document your story? The edge of the plateau. Darkness below, and in that darkness, crawling horror. Dr. Dyer, are you okay? It's not a story. I didn't mean story. I meant experience. I want to hear what you have to say. I feel this is something to define our future. Are you okay to begin? Yes, of course I am. My records say that you worked for Miskatonic University. I was the professor of geology until they asked me to leave the university upon my return. Ah, I see. Now, you didn't mention why you wanted someone from Arkham Advertiser to record your experience. At first, they weren't going to send anyone. It's been over three years since you've returned from Antarctica. No offense, but you're old news. It wasn't until I saw your name come across my desk that they were willing to hear from you. This is my last attempt to prevent further exploration and study of Antarctica. My earlier attempts, I fear, have been in vain. They have greenlit a new expedition, the, the Starkweather Moor Party, and they refuse to listen to my warnings. I'm afraid they will melt and bore till they bring up that which we know may end the world. The end of the world? <laughs> well, the rumors of your madness are true, then. Rumors? They are not rumors. What was reported and sent back is but a small portion of what actually happened. Are you saying you misreported your findings? Only to the general public. I have no choice but to reveal the truth now. Very well. 
Let's start from the beginning. Uh, tell me, who was part of the expedition? You must understand, this was not a small undertaking. There may have been only four of us from the university leading the way, but we had backing from outside sources as well. Pabodi joined our expedition because of her expertise and new drilling technologies that she herself created for ease of digging through the ice tundra with accuracy and speed. This would allow us to hit our deadlines. Professor Lake came to us from the biology department of Miskatonic. An eccentric human to say the least, but probably the most excitable out of the group. Atwood was our physics expert, not to mention that they were also a meteorologist. Beyond them, the expedition consisted of seven grad students, nine skilled mechanics. We traveled with two ex-whaler ships called the Arkham and Miskatonic. We also had several sledges, dogs, machines, camp materials, and parts for assembling five planes. We were more than prepared for the conditions of the expedition. <laughs> really wasn't a small operation. The university didn't hold back. I should also make mention of... of Danforth, who was with me on the expedition. Danforth. I wanted to meet with him as well. The asylum wouldn't let me without certain approval. The doctors, however, tell me that exposure and isolation drove him to madness. The, the doctors are wrong. They don't know. They think they know, but they don't know what is out there. What is under us. Elder Pharaohs lights the way. Dr. Dyer? The edge of the plateau. Dr. Dyer! Call me Will. Very well. Will? Are you okay to continue? Yes, of course. Now, were there any problems getting to base camp? Surprisingly, no. We couldn't have asked for better travel. We loaded our ships at Boston Harbor. We departed on September 2nd, 1930, in hopes to be on the continent for the Antarctic summer. From there, we traveled through the Panama Canal, stopped in Samoa and Hobart, and had our final stop and supply refill in Tasmania. On October 20th, at 62 degrees south latitude, we broke the Antarctic Circle. And on the 26th, we saw land. The scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing pains of Nicholas Rorick, and descriptions of the evilly fabled plateau of Leng that occur in the dreaded Necronomicon from Abdul al-Hazad. Looking back, I wish I had brought a copy with me. Danforth, who was well-versed in Poe and in all things bizarre, compared it to Arthur Gordon Pym on the shores. Once we were able... We set up base camp and unloaded everything, and quickly went to our first dig site at the base of Mount Erebus. We went to work immediately, and got several unexpected samples. Lake was interested in one particular fossil. I thought it was normal, but something kept pushing Lake. Was there something else beyond the fossil driving Lake? At the time, I didn't think so. Looking back on it, yes, of course. Lake thought something was odd about the samples and the striations on the rock, and wanted to explore more to the west. They took Atwood, a couple planes, and some other assistants with them. I was never really against this mini-adventure, until catabatic winds and a storm started up. For safety, I wanted them back. 
Lake refused and continued on. After 1.5 hours of radio silence, we got this report. 10.05 p.m. On the wing. After snowstorm, have spied mountain range higher than anything I've ever seen. May equal Himalayas. Probable latitude, 76 degrees, 15 minutes. Longitude, 113 degrees, 10 minutes east. Reaches as far as the eye can see to the right and left. Suspicion of two smoking cones. All peaks black and bare of snow. Gale blowing off them impedes navigation. After that transmission, we all had that wave of adventurous excitement. We may have just discovered a new range of titanic mountains a mere 700 miles away. Half an hour later, Lake called us again. Molten's plane forced down on plateau of foothills. Nobody hurt and perhaps can repair. Mountains surpass anything in imagination. And going up scouting in Carol's plane with all weight out. Cannot imagine anything like this. Highest peaks must go over 35,000 feet. Everest out of the running. Atwood to work out height with theodolite, while Carol and I go up. Probably wrong about cones, for formations look stratified. Possibly pre-Cambrian slate with other strata mixed in. Skyline effects. Whole thing marvelous and red gold light of low sun. Like land of mystery in a dream or gateway to forbidden world of untold wonder. Wish you were here to study. Between camp and the ships, everyone was on the edge of the seat awaiting to see, or rather hear, what was next. And at 11 p.m., we got another message. Up with Carol over highest foothills. Don't dare try really tall peaks in present weather. Main summits do exceed Himalayas and are very odd. Was wrong about volcanism. Goes farther than we can see in either direction. Swept clear of snow above about 21,000 feet. Odd formation of slopes of highest mountains. Great low square blocks with exactly vertical sides. Rectangular lines of low vertical ramparts, like old castles clinging to steep mountains and Rorix paintings. Most edges crumbled and rounded off as if exposed to storms and climate changes for millions of years. Close flying shows many cave mounts. Think I saw a rampart squarely on top of one peak. Height seems about 30,000 to 35,000 feet. I'm up at 21,500 myself. Gnawing cold. No flying danger so far. Every half hour Lake continued the commentary and expressed interest in climbing. I wanted to join them as soon as I could send a plane. We decided to make a new subcamp at Lake's location. With the creation of the new subcamp, they must have found something spectacular. It was spectacular. The drill team discovered a cave. The ground gave way to this opening. We quickly discovered this crevice had many unique fossils dating back to Mesozoic Cretaceous eras. There was too much to even catalog. Everyone rushed over to this wonder, 
as Lake wrote out notes for Moulton to relay back to base camp and the ships. Have found a peculiar soapstone about six inches and a half inch thick. Curious smoothness and regularity, shaped like a five-pointed star pattern with tips broken off and signs of other cleavage at inward angles. Carol thinks he can make out additional markings, groups of tiny dots and regular patterns. Dogs are growing uneasy as we work. 10.15 p.m., important discovery. Monstrous barrel-shaped fossil of wholly unknown nature. Tissue evidently preserved by the mineral salts. Tough as leather. This reminds one of certain monsters, the fabled elder things in the Necronomicon. Must dissect when we get back to camp, looking for more specimens. Having trouble with the dogs. They can't endure the new find. We'll keep them at a safe distance. 11.30 p.m. Attention. Matter of highest importance. Arkham must relay to Kingsport Head Station at once. Strange barrel creature is the arcane thing that left prints in rocks. Discovered a cluster of 13 more at underground point. Of organic specimens, eight apparently perfect with all appendages. Have brought all to the surface. Objects are eight feet long, six foot, ridged barrel torso, dark gray, flexible, and infinitely tough. Seven foot membranous wings of same color folded. Spread wings have serrated edge. Around the equator of the barrel, stave-like ridges of five systems of gray flexible arms or tentacles folded to torso, but expansible to over three feet like arms of primitive crinoid. Single stalks branch off into five substalks, each of which branches into small tendrils. Give each stalk mm, 25 tentacles. At the top of torso, starfish-shaped head covered with three-inch wiry cilia of various prismatic colors. At the bottom of the torso, more starfish-shaped projections as well as four-foot arms with paddles undoubtedly used for motion of some sort. Students keep comparing to elder things and referencing folklore of Cthulhu cult, etc. I must dissect one of these before I get some rest. Wish I had a real laboratory here. I made sure the transmissions were sent to the Arkham. I needed to get out to Lake's camp as soon as possible, but Lake told us to hold due to catabatic winds that would have made our travel to them dangerous. Lake had reported that they were able to retrieve eight intact specimens and get them to camp. They got the dogs into a safe corral away from the specimens and left all but one of them spread out on the hard snow. I understand. Dissection is always a meticulous event in the best of conditions. Was Lake able to achieve or gather any more information? Lake had a hard time cutting into any specimen without damaging it further. He decided to keep it in the heated tent, which allowed some thawing to begin. With this thaw was a pungent offensive odor and blood that was a thick, dark green fluid. The dogs had gotten worse, started savagely barking and restless. 
Eventually, Lake got through the initial dissection. But it was just as confusing as it was insightful. How so? Externally, this creature looked animal in all features. Internally, it was more puzzling and seemed more vegetable in structure. It carried elements of spore reproduction as well as vocal organs. It was this hybrid creature that seemed marine in origin but had wings to assume it was aerial. Altogether, little could be said, and Lake fell back on mythology for a provisional name, dubbing his finds the Elder Ones. Huh. The Dweller in Darkness, that brother of the Old Ones called Nigotha, a thing that should not be. That is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons die. I know my Necronomicon as well, Dr. Dyer. Well, I said... Call me Will. Will, please go on. The next day, we spent several hours trying to get Lake on the radio to see how things were going and to get an update. Finally that evening, Danforth and myself as well as several others got the fifth plane and set out to Lake's camp to see what was happening. We were about to witness a world of lurking horrors, which I can never unsee. Well, it... If you need to stop at any time, please feel free to take a break or we can continue at a different time. Thank you, Terrence, but there is no more time. I need to push through. Very well. Go on. We approached the mountains. At first, I was in awe of their majesty. But as I looked at them more and more, it was as if these nightmare spires marked the frightful gateway into forbidden dreams an almost ultra-dimensionality. They felt like evil things. Although there were natural true formations on these spires, I kept getting this wave of uneasiness. As I looked beyond the spires, what I can assume is a mirage formed of a stone city. Mirage? Mirages were nothing new to any of us, as we each had witnessed several being on the frozen plateau. Just as quickly as I saw this stone city... It melted away, and I was left looking into those mountains of madness. With that, we began our descent back to Earth. If I recall, this was the final transmission from the expedition, before we heard you were returning home. Yes, we told of missing people that the catabatic winds killed everyone at camp in the nighttime. I would still tell this story if I was not trying to dissuade a new expedition. The wind did bring havoc to the campsite. And if it weren't the other thing, they may still have died. The storm seemed to have destroyed some of the structures being built, washed away any trace of footprints, and all the arcane subjects were gone. The dogs, too, were dead. Just so I'm clear on my note-taking, as we move forward, it's all information you have not shared prior. You are correct. The world knows nothing of what I'm about to tell you. I wish I could keep it that way. Let us continue on about Lake's camp. The greater destruction was on the side of the camp structure, which looked as if a beast leaped through or broke out. All three sledges were gone. Lake's team had buried six imperfect monstrosities upright in nine-foot snow graves under star mounds, punched with groupings of dot patterns exactly like the ones we found earlier. The eight perfect specimens were nowhere to be found. 
Gedney was missing, as well as one dog. I used madness to explain what happened to the bodies. It seemed the easiest way to justify what was done to the party and the dogs. They were all torn and mangled in fiendish, inexplicable ways. Death seemed to come from strangulation or a laceration. It seemed to have started with the dogs. They had seemed to break through their corral. The bodies were incised and subtracted from in the most inhumane ways. Those that were the healthier, bigger bodies had their solid masses of tissue cut out and removed carefully. Around the mangled bodies was sprinkled salt. There was a faint snow print off in the corner of the camp that was not human at all, but resembled that of the fossil that Lake had found. Oh my God. In the dissection tent, the subject was missing and no parts anywhere. Danforth and I agree that one of the buried subjects were the portions from the dissection. In its place, strewn all over the table and around the area, were inexpertly dissected parts of one person and one dog. We buried all the body and dog parts, and this was the worst of the camp horror. But other things were just as perplexing. The disappearance of Gedney and the dog the uninjured subjects, three sledges, certain instruments, spare tents, etc., all gone. Curious, though, were the blood-splattered ink blots on papers and books. This is terrible. But if you want to dissuade another expedition, they are going to want proof, or at least a corroboration of these events. We took photographs of everything. I'm holding on to some of the evidence, as is Danforth. I will provide the copies of all our documentation. While going through the site, we concluded that the polar solitude and the demon wind off the mountains drove Lake's party mad. You believe that in one night of storms, Gidney had gone mad and ripped everyone apart, then disappeared into the wilderness? At that time? Yes. We decided that Danforth and I would travel beyond the mountains and see if we could discover what had happened. You both just witnessed this horrific massacre. Was this the moment when Manus began creeping in? Yes. But what happens to us after being at that campsite is what set Danforth into spiraling madness and myself to the brink of it. Danforth and I took the plane to higher altitudes, witnessing the very thing that Lake had saw that first day. We assumed that the mountains would look like some smooth aged stone similar to that of the Garden of the Gods, but it was more constructed and with intent. The mirage I thought I saw earlier was no mirage, but rather a cyclopean maze of squared, curved, and angled blocks. Fascinating. Indeed. Everything kept bringing me back to that Necronomicon that had been haunting me since I arrived with their pre-human implications of the Elder Things and the Hyperborean legends of formless Sagotha and the worse-than-formless star spawn associated with the entity. There are ways in which the mind of a man is like unto an eye in that it can be used as a lens to focus the powers that exist in the space between worlds. Trust me, Terrence, what you think you may understand of the Necronomicon is but a taste of what I've seen. 
I will tell you about the spaces between worlds. This place we discovered could be no ordinary city lost to time. This labyrinth must have been some sort of central megalopolis. At this point, we used half of our gas, and we need to make sure to exert caution in our exploration. I'm assuming with the gas consumption, it forced you to explore on foot? Yes. We found a patch of snowy flat area near the foothills by the pass we flew into. We wanted a brief exploration and to photograph everything as we went. It was about a half-mile walk downhill to the actual city. As we turned a sharp corner into the city, Danforth began speaking. Did you see that? What are you talking about, Danforth? That right there. Well, I'm pointing at it on the ground. Danforth, I'm not seeing it. Those faint ground markings. Okay. Those are not natural. I'm not liking what those could be. Danforth, I understand. I'm a little on edge as well. What we saw at Lake's camp... It's not about the campsite. I'm getting the wave of terror ever so often, Will. So am I. But let's keep moving. Shh. You hear that? What? From over there. Danforth, you're just pointing to the horizon. It's hard to pinpoint. I'm not hearing anything. It's a muffled musical piping. I listened for a while, and it seemed to be similar to the sound the wind was making through the mountain caves. I could conclude that it was nature, but I eventually heard what they did, and it was something disturbingly different. Dr. Dyer? At the edge of the plateau. Dr. Dyer? Looking over that plain darkness below. Will! Um, I am sorry. Sometimes things creep up to the surface. Where was I? Walking through the polis. That's right. As we moved through this maze, we studied and investigated entrances and interiors of the ruins of this city. We eventually made it to a row of windows in the bulges of a colossal five-edged cone, undamaged. A giant six-foot archway opened up into this preserved building. We hesitated a moment or two, but finally took the plunge into the building. Great slate slabs covered the floor. A long, high corridor with sculpted walls opened up. We could see a complex nest of apartments breaking off on either side. Was it fully preserved or just undamaged and weathered? A little of both. It was oddly preserved, but ice had taken over the deserted area. Imagination could conceive almost anything about this place. That which is below corresponds to that which is above. And that which is above corresponds to that which is below. To accomplish the miracles of the one thing. (laughs) You know your emerald tablets. Good. Then you will understand the photographs of the mural carvings that help give truth to the horrible drama and revelations to come. 
We continued walking through this honeycomb labyrinth, leaving torn pieces of paper in our wake to allow us a quick and easy return. I'm very curious about these carvings. Unlike any art you would ever find in a museum. There were these odd, smooth cartouches with oddly patterned groups of dots. The pictorials themselves seemed to use mathematical and geometrical shapes and patterns. Everything was revolving around a central number of five. These, plus the sculptures, were so informative to us, all of which dwarfs our modern understanding of the world. As you talk more, it feels like we should send another party to excavate the city. It would be tragic if more agree with that statement and be allured to that realm of death and horror. Is that not the risk we take for growth? Risk? What I lost? What Danforth lost? What the entirety of Lake's camp lost is not worth the knowledge found there. No, the price is too high. It's unfortunate what you experienced, but now that we know, why not return? You don't know what it's like. That crawling horror. That stifling terror that haunts your every moment. That smell of death. There's more to what happened. And when I'm done, you'll understand. Very well. Let's continue. I will keep an open mind. We ventured farther. As the world around us got darker and darker, we needed our electric torches. I want to know that this sheer, absolute darkness and lethal desolation were enough to overwhelm almost any sensitive person. Excluding the hoarder that we witnessed at the camp. There was one mural that we approached in the darkness. No ambiguity. It was straightforward and gave an explanation that Danforth and I always knew. This place, everything we were seeing, was created by them. The old ones? Yes. The lore is true. The nameless city exists. Yes. Didn't the Necronomicon talk about the city being on a plateau of Lang? Yes. This is groundbreaking. It is maddening. Please, Will, I need to know more. Danforth and I continued on into the darkness, mapping all the murals we can find to hopefully tell the full mythological story. I believe this is when Danforth and I started showing signs of growing madness. No. It can't be. Danforth, I know this is a lot of information to take in, but we must continue. Well, I, I know. It's just this darkness all around. What happened to Lake and now all the nightmarish folklore that I thought was just folklore is probably true. We will continue on a little longer and then start our ascent back. Is this not bothering you? I don't know what to think yet. I'm trying to just focus on the information gathering and once we are back on the Arkham I can process everything else. I'm trying to stay- Sane? Me too. Information gather. I can do this. I can focus on it. One step at a time. I am here with you. And rightfully so, Danforth was to be shaken up. 
I've written down the entire mural story of the rise of the Old Ones, their evolution, their war with Cthulhu, and their connection to the Shoggoths. I reported on a supposed witch house where it was rumored Shoggoths had an influence and were described as multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs. And they communicated through a mimicking of the Old One's speech, which sounds like musical piping. I was unaware of that. I'm anxious to see your material. But for now, please, go on. The sculptures continued, telling stories of the origin of the Old Ones and what had happened to them and where they may be now. This is when we decided, Danforth and I, to keep silent about the order of things. Any reason why? We decided to change our expedition reasons, find proof the old ones are still around. So we made a choice to go find the abyss. According to the mural maps, the closest entry was about a quarter of a mile away. Danforth, this must be the entrance. Look at the sculptures. Ritual-like. I smell something, Will. Go on. The smell is subtle. Do you smell it? I'm starting to. It's familiar. It's the same smell from the grave we opened up at Lake's camp. The specimen Lake dissected. I, th- I think I'm going to vomit. Danforth? You okay to keep moving forward? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be okay. Look at those menacing sculptures. Beautiful, are they not? Look ahead. That debris. Curious. It looks as if these heavy stones have been dragged in a particular spot. Will, over here. Come here, look at these parallel tracks. Danforth? Danforth, do you smell that? Petrol? That's what I smell too. Let's find out where that's coming from. Will, do you think it's possible this is all connected to Lake's camp? It's possible Gedney made the trek here. But to this depth, in the darkness? You're right. My mind must be playing tricks on me. Danforth, look. You see that passage there? The debris has been moved away recently. That petrol smell is stronger through that archway you were talking about, Will. I see something over towards the corner of the room. Use your torch. It looks like a campsite covered with petrol. Danforth, these tin cans, furs, tents are all from Lake's camp. Look, more blood ink blotted paper. It forms a map. A map of the city and pathways. This can get us back. It also shows a more direct route to the abyss. I I think we should just leave. It feels like we are not wanted here. With this map, we can get there and back with expediency. Very well. 
we took that map with us and continued this new path. As we got farther away, the gasoline smell disappeared. But the nauseating smell from earlier took its place. We were on our way to this new Seleniac Tower that was on the map. As we ascended, more daylight peeked through. As we approached the tower interior, the walls grew to immense proportions, cosmic sculptures littering all the walls. We found a lot of missing items from Leg's camp, but no kidney. Seems like you were too far away for someone to survive that distance in the middle of a storm at night. At the time, we agreed with you. Until we saw the three missing sledges behind some debris. Which by itself is not as big a surprise. But when we pulled back the wrappings, on one of the sledges, there were the bodies of Gedney and the missing dog. We stood there bewildered. They did die to exposure. Interesting. They made it that far, but why? We don't know. Do you believe that Gidney caused deaths and destruction at Lake's camp? Yes, but I think there is more than just Gedney that caused that. Go on. Now moving toward the abyss and continuing down the path, a corridor of no sculptures, debris, or murals, just an empty hallway. It eventually opened up into a perfectly inverted hemisphere. We reached the opening to the great abyss. It is feeling warmer. As we go deeper. There's something else. That repugnant smell is back. <coughs> only, oh. only stronger. I, I can taste it. Do you see the sculptures? They look less intricate. We must be getting closer. Wait. Stop. Danforth? What? Look ahead, on the ground. Oh my god. It looks like Lake's missing specimen. Do you see that? That greenish fluid all around them. I need a closer look. Danforth, be careful as you approach. Look around. Do you see any others? I do not. Well, each one has been decapitated. Cleaved? No, it looks like their heads were ripped or suctioned off of their bodies. It looks recent. I remember seeing this somewhere before. What do you mean? An earlier sculpture depicting the story and wars of the Old Ones, and how the Shoggoths slew the Old Ones, by ghastly headlessness. Well... Look on the wall. Groupings of dots in this green fluid. Danforth? Look up. Slowly. Do you see that mist? Will. I do. No! Danforth, run! <laughs> <laughs> It's gaining on us. Keep running. Please, please, please. Keep moving. I... Danforth, the 
Let's use our torches and try blinding it. I can't. Yes, you can. Just turn quickly with me. Okay, I'll try. Ready? Turn. Now! The flash from the torches may have saved our lives, but we paid a high price. As we flashed the mist, that piping crippled our consciousness. To this day, I still don't know how we managed to get out of there. Danforth was totally unstrung. And the first thing I remember of the rest of the journey was hearing them lightheadedly chanting. South Station under. Washington under. Park Street under. Kendall. Central. Harvard. They kept chanting the familiar stations of the Boston-Cambridge Tunnel. Did you see what was in the mist? The thing that should not be. What of Danforth? Danforth was shaken as we got to the plane. And as we rose in the air, madness took over. There was something they saw from the plane. I do not know what it was, but Danforth claims that they were shown a single, fantastic, demonic glimpse of what lay in those mountains of madness, which the old ones had shunned and feared. Occasionally, they will whisper disjointed and irresponsible things. The Black Pit, the Cavern Rim, the Proto-Shoggoths, The windowless solids with five dimensions, the nameless cylinder, the elder pharaohs, Yogg-Sholoth, the primal white jelly, the color out of space, the wings, the eyes in the darkness, the moonlander, the original, the eternal, the undying. What a fantastical adventure. Horrifying. Right. That is what I meant. Horrifying. Well, Dr. Dyer, is there anything else you would like for me to make note of? Will. My name is Will. I'm sorry, Will. Is there anything else you want to add? Like what? Is that not enough? Do you not understand? If what is in the nameless city comes to the surface, madness will take us over. There are worse things in the world. But I'm not here to argue with you. Well... I will get this all typed up and sent off to my editor as soon as I am able. Thank you. Please make sure this gets published before the Starkweather Moor party leaves for expedition. I will now take my leave.
Please, uh, come in. Perfect timing. Dr. Starkweather, please have a seat. We received the funding, and the Miskatonic is ready to set sail to Antarctica once more. Now, Mr. Moore, is it what we thought? <laughs> yes, they do exist. And not just them, the nameless city. He found the Plateau of Lang. Good. We leave immediately. The package Will is handing over includes detailed maps. We can get to the abyss with ease and set up the perfect base camp. Excellent. Is there something else, Mr. Moore? Dr. Starkweather, I would be amiss if I didn't give a word of warning. Danforth did go mad, and several people did die. Madness is simply understanding the true reality. The Shoggoth return is necessarily well overdue. What of the cult of Cthulhu? <laughs> Those uneducated idiots are on the verge of resurrection. The need to awaken what's in the city below has never been so dire. <sighs> Please secure Danforth aboard the ship. Once Will hands over the materials, we shall take our leave to these mountains of madness. what a terrifying world this is the unknown right below us and above us there is no escape with what's to come this has been an atmospheric adventure for the ages It's that time of the night where we must take our leave of you and venture out to those shrouded corners. But don't worry, my little ducklings. We will return. We bid you good night and adieu. adieu. You just heard tonight's performance of the Dark Pony Radio Show with voices from the Dark Pony players. Matt Sachs, Max Bessner, Matthew Kelly, the Dark Gentleman, and the Pale Lady. Featuring Todd O'Dowd. Sound designer and engineer from the wonderful Benjamin Conklin. Old Time Radio, written by M. Terrell Woods. Performed by Carnage the Executioner. Courtesy of the artist. Tonight's performance was an original adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Written by Matthew Kelly. And sponsored by The Living Artist Podcast. Don't wait until you're dead to make a living as an artist. This has been a Shadow Horse Theater production.